We are now at a point when it, it is decided whether aggressor and terror will once again become a customary way for one nation to relate to another. What then becomes of our world? It's been almost a decade since Russia illegally annexed Crimea with Vladimir Putin calling the peninsula sacred ground. And the public reaction to this force, this first forceful change of borders in Europe since the Third Reich was euphoric, with chants of cream nosh ringing in the air. But today, Russians are hardly acting as if Crimea is hollowed ground. Instead, they are fleeing the peninsula in droves amid constant air assaults from Ukraine. Suddenly, Russia's historical claims look hollow. And suddenly, Crimea is very much in play. Today, we'll talk to the author of a recent article about this new Crimean War and unpack what it all means. So stick around. Hello from my makeshift office studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the uber-hit funnel of Brooklyn, New York, is journalist and longtime Russia watcher Casey Michelle author of the book American Kleptocracy. Casey's also the author of a recently published article in Foreign Policy titled Russia's Red Line in Crimea Has Been Erased. Welcome to The Vertical, Casey. Great to be here, Brian. Great to have you. So, Casey, you've had Crimea on your mind for a while now. Back in March, you published an article in Politico titled Here's How Ukraine Can Retake Crimea, which we discussed back then on this podcast with the great General Ben Hodges. And now you're at it again with a new piece that we'll be discussing today. Why all the focus on Crimea? You obviously think this is a big deal. <laughs> yeah, I certainly do. And I, I would uh, you know, venture to guess that a lot of other folks in Washington and elsewhere, certainly based on recent reportage, think that Crimea is a big deal and potentially the big deal as the war continues moving forward. And, and, and Brad, the, the, the answer to that question is yes, certainly Crimea has been top of mind. On, on my end, I've written a few articles about it uh, now uh, for uh, especially American audiences to try to get folks, um, you know, a, a little more familiar with the other region, certainly cut through some of the propaganda. But there, there are two elements that uh, make Crimea so relevant to certainly my interest, but certainly as, as I see it, you know, the rest of Western interests and Ukrainian interests moving forward. The first is that Crimea is where this all began. Exactly. In 2014. Um, you know, a lot of folks uh, are still of the mind, you know, consciously or otherwise, of saying, you know, the war began in early 2022, Russia invaded in early 2022. And Brian, obviously you and I know that that's not uh, technically true. We obviously understand what people are saying. But the war began, the invasion began back in 2014 when Russian troops, or if you like to call them, you know, little green men or polite people, whatever euphemism you like to use, first spread through the Crimean Peninsula. And obviously that was the first annexation out of Moscow itself. And obviously, as we know now, not the only annexation itself. But that's that's where it all began back in 2014. And, and that's certainly one of the reasons that I have been so focused on Crimea and some of, of my work. But beyond that, the second reason is is because there really has been this kind of lack of familiarity, lack of understanding or awareness of Crimea as it actually is and Crimeans as they actually are. I mean, I think, again, a lot of folks are certainly aware of what Crimea is and maybe even where it is on a map. But I do think there's a lot of 
propaganda that has been certainly put out by the the Kremlin itself that this is historic Russian land, this is sacred Russian land. And unfortunately, a lot of folks in the West, including politicians in Washington, Berlin, London, and elsewhere, have swallowed that wholesale because they are not familiar with Crimea as it actually is, and then beyond that, Crimeans as they actually are, and beyond that, you know, what Crimeans want at the end of the day. So that's what I've been trying to do in a lot of my writing uh, and why Crimea on my end has been so important. Yeah, no, and I I mean, I'm glad you're doing this. Um, and again, this is not the first time you and I have uh, done this program about Crimea. We, we we discussed your your article about how Ukraine can retake Crimea, which liberally cited uh, retired Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, our mutual friend, the former commanding officer of U.S. Army Europe. Um, and there's a and the reason I'm glad we did that back then, and I'm glad we're doing it now, is because a lot of the conventional wisdom was, well, we'd pretty much consider it a victory if Ukraine basically retook all of eastern Ukraine. And like Crimea is another question. We could put that off to another day. It's different um, and so on. But then if you really look at it in general, Hodges really made this abundantly clear. Ukraine is not going to be secure with a Russian occupied Crimea ever yeah. um, because it can menace southern Ukraine from there. Um, so, so so and but the other part of it is retaking Crimea, as we discussed back in March of this podcast, is a lot um, I don't want to say easier, um, but easier than the conventional wisdom suggests. And people like General Hodges are suggesting it would be actually, it's it's a lighter lift to retake Crimea than to, to than to retake the Donbass. So yeah. so, so yeah. Crimea is 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 central to this. Now you you take a, a number of interesting uh, arg- you make a, n- a number of interesting arguments in your piece. Um, the title, of course, is your main point. Red lines about Crimea are a fiction. So let's let's start with that, because there's been this ongoing assumption that if Ukraine starts to move on Crimea, if Ukraine starts to hit Crimea, that will cause Russia to escalate. Well, guess what? Crimea has been hitting. I mean, right. Ukraine's been hitting Crimea for a while. Yeah. Um, they hit the headquarters of the Black Sea Fleet. Um, and lo and behold, Huh. This talk of escalation was all a bluff, I guess. So what do you yeah. we, you've written about this? But for for our readers who haven't read your piece and shame on them, uh, give, give us a little teaser. here. No, Brian, I mean, I think, look, I, I appreciate that setup. And I, I think it's worth talking about our conversation previous with uh, uh, General Hodges as well, given what we talked about early, early in this year and how much has changed over the past year and where things are going moving forward themselves. But, you know, you hit the nail on the head. You know, the piece that I, I put in foreign policy the other day, this is arguing very clearly that these notions of these concerns about a red line in Crimea, potential nuclear escalation or somehow even worse, um, have been shown to be hollow, have been shown to be little more than rhetorical bluff uh, for one reason and one reason alone, because of the ongoing day in, day out, week in, week out, successful strikes from Ukrainian forces on the Crimean Peninsula, on Russian assets in Crimea. And it's funny because it's one of those things that kind of snuck up on certainly me, but I think a lot of folks as well. If we look back at the last four to six weeks, you know, we had the kind of day-in, day-out news cycle of successful Ukrainian strikes on whether it's the Black Sea Fleet headquarters, whether it's other naval or, uh, you know, ship-based, uh, submarine-based assets in Sevastopol, or if it's even things like Russian air defense across the peninsula, 
you know, we saw these successful strikes over and over and over again. And again, much of that predicated on Western arms support, things like the Storm Shadow missiles out of the UK or potentially even comparable missiles out of the US and Germany. And it's one of those things where it's, you know, kind of a few weeks in where it really dawned on me that not only are we seeing these successful strikes over and over, but you know what that means? All these threats, all these concerns about nuclear retaliation, about some kind of escalation out of the Kremlin. Well, it turns out we're seeing hit after hit and nothing right. is happening out of the Kremlin. And then even even beyond this, and we, we can talk about this later in the conversation, even beyond that, we didn't see the kind of rally to the flag effect that I think a lot of right. folks in the West presume. You know, there was this rhetoric, I don't know if it was Elon Musk or, or someone else who first coined this concern about a, a Pearl Harbor style rally to the flag, a Pearl Harbor style enlistment, and again, beyond that escalation out of Russia, by, by Russians themselves, you know, we, we didn't see that. We haven't seen it yet. This whole notion, this whole edifice of this image of Crimea as this holy land, this this Temple Mount, as Putin has called it, you know, that has really crumbled over the past uh, yep. month, which is, again, why I wanted to put this piece together. And you also uh, related to this piece and going back to Putin's um, historically inaccurate bordering on the obscene uh, equation of of. Of, of, uh, of, of Crimea as the Temple Mount, which is based on a grossly inaccurate reading of, uh, of, of history, you make the point, and I think this is a, a really good point to make here, that Russians are not acting like this is sacred ground. They are fleeing the peninsula in droves. Uh, nobody is rushing to defend it, right? If it were sacred ground, you'd think that Russians would be signing up to you know join the holy war to, to preserve our our, our holy ground but the, quite the opposite is happening russians are leaving crimea in droves um yeah. which which is uh is is another interesting point there. anything to add, yeah. to add on that yeah no i was gonna say you know I, I think just to just to bring it back to where we were early in this year and you know some of the concerns about about red lines about escalation about even supplying ukraine with the arms to target assets in, in Crimea. You know, I think certainly a lot of that was coming from, I, I think, good faith arguments. I, you know, I don't want to besmirch those are, that are necessarily putting these concerns out, at, at least at least in the West. I do, I do think a lot of folks were understandably concerned that perhaps potentially Russians would rally, would, um, again, come out in droves to um, uh, uh, sign up for this, as you said, kind of holy war to finally and truly, uh, you know, decimate Ukrainian efforts to retake Crimea. But as we have seen over the last four, five, six weeks, that is absolutely not true. That is an absolute farce. Not only are Russians not seeing this as any kind of holy war or holy land themselves, but given that the Kremlin continues to even consider a second mobilization, and folks that are a lot more well-versed in Kremlin conscription numbers than I certainly see a second fuller mobilization on the horizon, you know, it, it is remarkable that Russians are do not even appear to be willing to put their, whether it's lives on their line or, you know, the lives of their, their children or, or brothers or fathers on the line to to protect this supposed sacred land that Putin has spent years trying to convince the West is, um, you know, is sacrosanct, is, again, akin to the Temple Mount, this kind of font of, of, of Russian nationhood and statehood and empire. Um, it has been just, again, this remarkable crumbling of this idea of Crimea as a sacred land. And frankly, if you blink, you would have missed it, which is, again, why I wanted to put this piece together, put this argument together, because guess what? Those arguments have been very, very clearly put to bed. They are no longer worth their salt whatsoever. 
Yeah, no, Crimea, it turns out, is just another piece of illegally Russian-occupied territory. That's all it is. Uh, it's no different from Donetsk. Um, not to belittle Donetsk in any way, shape, or form. It's a lovely city. Um, yeah. But uh, but but it, it's it's no more sacred than that. It's just another piece of Russian illegally occupied territory. And it makes me wonder, because Casey, you and I both remember 2014. We both remember the the euphoria, the whole Krim Nash thing, the St. George's medals and all of the, the, this wave of patriotism that 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 swept the, the that swept the nation at that point with Putin's popularity skyrocketing rocketing. How much of that in retrospect it looked real at the time, at least the 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 um I mean the narratives coming out of the Kremlin were of course all false, but the 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 sent the popular sentiment in Russia looked real to me. And it begins to make me wonder how much of that was manufactured? Yeah, that's you know? a great question, Brian. I, you know, I think that's something for future historians, right? They're, they're yeah. going to be dissecting that to look at that. How much of that was was astroturf? How much of that was real? But look, I, what I would say is, you know, it's a lot easier to say Krimnash and, you know, rally on the streets of Moscow, wherever it might be. It's a lot easier to do that. It's a lot easier to say that than it is to actually pick up a gun Going out to Sevastopol or Simferopol or, 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 or Yalta, wherever it may be, and actually face down Ukrainian troops that are trying to come in and retake Ukrainian land. It's a lot easier to say that than it is to put your life on the line and actually put, um, you know, put some effort be, uh, behind those words. But look, I, I, I do think uh, that 2014, you know, the so-called Crimean consensus was perhaps a lot less um, uh, meteor or, um, uh, 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 you know, heftier than, than, than a lot of folks in the West might have uh, initially considered. But I do I do think it's worth highlighting as well. Brian, you just, you just brought up an excellent point, uh, if I may say, you know, that um, Crimea is no longer unique. It is now simply one of a broad range, a portfolio of other provinces that are Ukrainian land that Russia has laid claim to. And I, I do think it's still underappreciated the September 2022 annexations of you know four other Ukrainian lands, right. how that also helped undercut this narrative, this idea that Crimea is some unique bastion of Russian identity, is some area again worth annexing versus the rest of Ukraine. I mean, it has been remarkable over the last whatever 18, 20 months now to watch how this idea, through so many different areas, so many different reasons, this this idea that Crimea is unique, really just watch it kind of collapse one yeah. step after another. And I frankly don't know when that when that's going to end given Ukraine's increased successes in, uh, as we have seen, long-range strikes, long-range fires on the peninsula to say nothing what's coming next. Yeah, no, I mean, I remember a metaphor that was, I believe it was Walter Russell Mead that made their metaphor back in 2014 when the, the, the so-called Crimean consensus was kind of solidifying. You had this euphoric period. He wrote that basically Putin gave his his uh, his country a, a, a hit of cocaine, right, basically. Uh, the thing about cocaine, it's real bad for you. You shouldn't take it. And it also wears off. Uh, it wears off. And it looks like this uh, this hit of cocaine is worn off and there there isn't any more. Right? Yeah. There isn't yeah. any more yeah. left. Um, yeah. It, and, you can uh, certainly d develop, a, uh, develop a habit as well, which we've seen play out, obviously, in, in parts of South and Southeastern Ukraine. And um, yeah, you know, those with, with habits and, and addictions like that don't always uh, tend to end up uh, in the healthiest places as we have uh, as we've seen. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of people in the Russian elite would would, would be familiar with that. But uh, <laughs> another uh, another bit that I couldn't resist that um, another bit that you uh, another point you made in the piece, which I thought was great, was that these 
these Russian historical claims on Crimea are very, very dubious, right? They're very, very dubious. Ukraine didn't become part of the Russian Empire until near the end of the 18th century, right? Um, so it, it, it is not historic Russian lands any more than any other Ukrainian land is historic Russian land. And again, this is another one of these myths that um, people in the West have unwittingly repeated. You know, this has always been Russia. No, it's not always been Russia, right? Um, it's been a lot of different things, right? It, uh, but it, but it, it, it's uh, by, by international law right now, it is Ukraine. But it is not some unique Russian territory. Could you expand on that a bit? Because I thought that sure. was another point. Sure, absolutely. I mean, certainly, you know, uh, you know, czarist forces first annexed the peninsula in 1783. As, as you know, Brian, as I'm sure listeners are perfectly aware, you know, Crimea has been controlled by a whole range of different polities. You know, the Ottoman, uh, Ottomans, Crimean Khanate, obviously, eventually, um, uh, uh, czarist forces and, uh, you know, eventually the Soviet Union. Um, and then independent Ukraine for uh, 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 you know for, for decades following the collapse of the of the Soviet Union uh, itself, I do think this is one of the key kind of propaganda claims, these key elements that I think a lot of folks in the West have subsumed that this is this kind of eternal Russian land. Okay, maybe Ukraine has certain claims to it, but look at the historical record annexed in 1783. Clearly, there are um, uh, uh, strong uh, Russian claims uh, to the territory itself. But frankly, you can make that argument about a whole range of other territories elsewhere that are by no means part of the Russian Federation, whether it's Baltic lands, Belarusian lands, Polish lands, Kazakh lands, so on and so forth. You can also make an argument that Crimea should be part of Turkey and that exactly. part of Mongolia when you start playing that game. Exactly. <laughs> How far back do you, do, do you want to go? I, I think even for someone like me that's, you know, again, relatively well-versed in, in Crimean history, I still was, you know, shocked, floored, whatever you want to kind of term it, you know, very surprised by one of the facts that I unearthed with this piece. With this piece, I mean, I knew there was this contested history, but what was most remarkable for me was that it wasn't even until the Second World War right. that Crimea was even majority ethnic Russian. And again, as you well know, only because of Stalinist gargantuan ethnic cleansing campaigns targeting especially Crimean Tatars. I mean, again, it was not majority Russian, the supposed no. eternal Russian land, until the 1940s. Uh, uh, and then only, you know, for, for less than 50 years thereafter, controlled by Moscow before, obviously, Ukraine declared independence and achieved independence. I mean, these are the kind of facts. And the Crimeans voted for independence, yes. I might. Yes. A majority of Crimeans, 1991, just like every single other Ukrainian province, even those other provinces that Russia now claims as its own, voted for independence from Moscow, voted to be part of an independent Ukrainian polity. Now, look, Crimean leadership has obviously agitated for autonomy in the years since mm. that autonomy was granted. There it was an autonomous republic controlled by, um, uh, uh, you know, as, as part of the uh, uh, Ukrainian um, uh, nation itself before annexation. But Crimeans were very clear in 1991. They wanted to be part of something that was not controlled by Moscow. They wanted to be part of that Ukrainian nation. And look, Ukrainians themselves recognize that, which is why we see 80%, 90%, even more, of Ukrainians themselves saying, we will not stop until Crimea is returned back into the Ukrainian family. And there's another interesting little factoid about this, and and and, and not to let the post-independence Ukrainian authorities off the, the hook, There's there was this policy of benign neglect of Crimea. It was so problematic that Kyiv didn't pay a lot of attention to it 
left it to its own devices. You add that fact to the fact that, let's just say Crimea was kind of like Ukraine's Sicily. <laughs> I mean, it was, it's a, it was a heavily criminalized region. Um, the, 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 it always has been. And I think it's a, an interesting factor that I think is really, really telling. This is something I, I use as a case study uh, with my students at UTA is that before the little green men even showed up, you know who showed up first in Crimea to prepare the ground for the annexation? The Solsevskaya Bratsma, the Solsevskaya Mafia group, the strongest organized crime group in Moscow. Putin dispatched a delegation from Solsevskaya, which is basically an organized crime organization, to Crimea to basically get all the Crimean gangsters on side. And this is why Aksyonov, also known as the Goblin, uh, was made the, the de facto leader. The, 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 the Russian-backed leader of Crimea is a gangster. It is a gangster. It's as if John Gotti were the, 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 the governor of New York or something. It's, it's ridiculous. But this, again, kind of, it, it, it's the, the fact that they had to send the gangsters in first to get, the organ, to get organized crime on board, and then a gangster becomes the quote-unquote de facto governor of the, of the province, I think, speaks um speaks speaks volume and i want to and, dive into and, that in the second half but go ahead. and it's been the, the governor ever since the annexation actually yeah. it's still there is now overseeing his own uh, private military uh, private militia company so on and so forth you're you're absolutely bright uh, right brian that softened the ground and we have seen clear evidence clear elements of that continue under russian yeah. control of crimea yeah no it's all it's always been a high and this is something again in the second half i want to talk about this the ukrainians you know, in the event that this gets liberated, we're going to have their work cut out for them. This is going to be, this is going to be tough, but I will, we'll get to that in a bit. Two more things I wanted to do, do before we do that. And one is that the degree to which a successful Ukrainian liberation of Crimea would truly change the security equation, not just, I mean, it would change the trajectory of the war pretty fundamentally um, because Russia's supply, resupply routes. I mean, first you got to cut off that land bridge. Right. Um, and that's we we still aren't there. I was hoping by October we'd be there. We're not quite there yet. Um, let's get those attackums over there, folks. Uh, anybody who's listening who has influence over these decisions. Let's get that. Let's, let's speed up the pipeline on those F-16s because this is doable. Yeah. Um, and once it's done, it changes the trajectory of the war pretty fundamentally. But it also changes the trajectory of not just Ukraine security, but Black Sea security in general, right? It totally changes the equation there. Um, right. it, it's, you didn't touch on this directly in your piece, but you've touched on this in the past. The the ramifications of successful reclamation of Crimea by Ukrainian forces are so broad, so sprawling, I really haven't had time to sit down and kind of run through each and every one of them. And frankly, that might be a great idea for a future piece uh, or future uh, your reporting project itself. I mean, I, it is difficult to, to overstate the importance, the reclamation of Crimea and beyond that, the eviction of Russian naval assets from Crimea would be for broader Black Sea security uh, itself. You know, Brian, you, you just talked about this on plenty of podcasts uh, previously. The state of Black Sea security, um, certainly concerns about potential uh, about about NATO partners in the region, but also Russia's expanding power projection uh, in the Black Sea in and of itself has been, you know, kind of a continuous just just I mean, expansion over the frankly right. past decade uh, or so. Uh, that's one element. Um, to say nothing of the other elements of uh, 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 how we would undercut Russia's capabilities for using Crimea as a forward operating base for future operations in Crimea. 
uh, undercutting Russia's ability to enforce the embargo, uh, grain-related or otherwise in Ukraine, which obviously has spiraling ramifications for global uh, food security itself. Uh, and then again, beyond that, to say nothing, what the, the kind of domestic um, ramifications would be in, in Russia itself. I mean, there are positive outcomes upon positive outcomes upon positive outcomes for supporting Ukraine's reclamation. And again, beyond that, knowing now that those red lines we've all been, well, many of us have been concerned about for the past year, for the past decade, have been shown to be in so many ways false or hollow men or straw men or whatever, again, image you'd like to use. I mean, it is really difficult, again, to overstate how positive um, restoring Ukrainian sovereignty over Crimea would be. Yeah, no, and, I, and again, I think this is this is not some theoretical question. I think this is actually, you know, uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get some pushback on this, but I think it is very, very, very realistic if we if we stay the course, um, if we get a new a new defense appropriation for Ukraine. Uh, anybody in Congress, I hope you're listening. Um, when we finally have a House of Representatives that's functioning again, um, to get that to get that get that appropriation package. Uh, there. The final thing, this kind of is a, is a way of segueing into our second section. Um, what do the Crimeans really want? Yeah. Um, because this is, again, another one of these myths that's been out there that the, the Crimeans, the residents of Crimea, want to be part of Russia. Um, they want to be part of Russia. I, I, I can't re help but recall an exchange at a conference a few years back um, be, be, between Ian Brzezinski and uh, Vyacheslav Nikonov, uh, the the grandson of 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 uh, of, of, uh, of Molotov, uh, yeah. and uh, it, it, where uh, where where uh, Nikonov said, "Well, Crimeans want to be part of Russia," and Ian responded, "That's because you've killed or imprisoned everybody that doesn't." Which <laughs> <laughs> was uh, pretty much bang on. But the, what, the, what do the Crimeans truly want? I mean, and this is a complicated question. Because those Crimean Tatars who fled Crimea, they don't. They want to be part of Ukraine. Um, the Ukra the ethnic Ukrainians who fled Crimea, they want to be part of Ukraine. The ethnic Russians who wanted no part of this nonsense who fled Crimea, and I know quite a few of them, they want to be part of Ukraine. Those who are on the peninsula right now, many of whom are transplants from Russia as well. I mean, I, there's the, the demographics of the peninsula has changed dramatically. But what do you? What do you? What's your sense there? Well, look, finding any polling in Crimea or frankly across much of Russia these days is an exercise in futility and comes with so many caveats, it's not even necessarily going to be worth citing in and of itself. All that being said, we actually don't have that much polling out of Crimea as it pertains to what Crimeans want, whether they're recent transplants, whether they're Tatars, whether they've been there for generations or they are recent, uh, recent arrivals. But what we can look at, what we can cite with pretty fair accuracy and a pretty strong sense of confidence is the polling, certainly in the lead up to annexation, while Ukraine still maintains sovereignty over Crimea itself. You know, I, I mentioned just a, you know, a few moments ago that Crimea, the majority of Crimeans, 1991, voted for independence from Moscow and obviously became part of the Ukrainian state itself. I mean, I think it was really striking to look at polling from even as recent as the middle of 2013 when, and maybe we could talk about this later, when I was actually in Crimea myself, traveling around, having these conversations on the ground, certainly not seeing any evidence of any pro-annexation sentiment. But but what we have in polling from the time is that, yes, there, there was, and I do want to be clear about this, there was part of the Crimean Peninsula, there, there, there was, was a significant number of Crimeans that were willing to entertain annexation. And there was uh, a, a number worth paying attention to uh, that desired outright annexation 
um, uh, to the Kremlin, uh, 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 to, to the Russian Federation itself. Now, according to polling, that was about 25%. So about one in two yeah, Crimeans right. at the time wanted an annexation. That was on a, on a downward slope from a few years earlier when it was about one-third of Crimeans who said they wanted an annexation outright. There's no reason to think that that wouldn't have continued declining moving forward. And frankly, even with the recent influx of um, Russians uh, and, and citizens of the Russian Federation, into the peninsula, it's difficult for me to believe that we would have seen such a spike from 25% to, I don't know, 75% or even the 97% that Moscow claims desiring of, of annexation itself. I mean, that, that was one data, data point certainly that stood out to me. Another data point from the time that stood out to me is, you know, Brian, you, you, you're exactly right to talk about the, certainly the, you know, the, the ethnic components of, of a, 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 a wildly multi-ethnic, multi-confessional um, a polity itself in 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 Crimea, and there's still this idea that all Crimeans are Russians or wayward Russians that simply want to rejoin Moscow itself. I mean, we saw, unfortunately, even just a few months ago, you know, former President Obama, who was obviously president during the um, annexation itself, say something along the lines of, you know, these are Russian speakers. Uh, what are you going to do? Uh, you know, I'm paraphrasing him, but that's effectively his, you know, um, uh, a description of, of uh, the Obama administration's response. But what we saw from the polling, again, is that while there were a, a notable number of ethnic Russians there, the majority of Crimeans identified as something other than Russian. Maybe it's Crimean, maybe it's um, uh, Ukrainian, maybe it's Tatar. You know, there there's a whole range of other identities, regardless of their passport, that they chose to identify primarily as. So I, what I'm saying is, you know, in 2013 and early 2014, the last real snapshot we have, a clear majority of Crimeans did not want annexation and identified as something other than right. ethnic Russian, even though they don't have to be ethnic Russian to be supporting annexation. As you well know, plenty of ethnic Russians do not and continue to do, uh, uh, not support the annexation. No, I mean, we know plenty of them. Our, our comic Chekhovsov is one of the most outspoken Crimeans on this issue. Look, I was going to say, to that point, Alexei Navalny, Ukraine says Ukraine must be restored to its 1991 borders, including Crimea. I mean, you you had plenty of examples. It took him a while. It took him a while to get there, but yeah, he got to the right place. Better late than never. Better late Absolutely. than never. And also, one thing before we shift gears, I wanted to add is that a lot of this allegedly pro-Russian sentiment in Crimea pre-annexation was indeed manufactured. We know that Yuri Lushkov, the former mayor of Moscow, was playing games with with so-called patriotic organizations in Crimea. Uh, from throughout the 90s. I mean, this is something that wasn't wasn't new. There was a lot of Russian money. There was a lot of Moscow money tied to the Moscow mayor flowing into flowing into Crimea in the 1990s. So it's again, this this a lot of this is manufactured. One just has to wonder what this is going to what, what this is going to look like if we get what we are wishing for here. And that's what I want to look at in the second half. So that's a good way to segue in a few moments, we will continue our discussion to look at some possible future scenarios for Crimea. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the upper hit pearl of Brooklyn, New York, is journalist and longtime Russia watcher Casey Michelle, author of the book American Kleptocracy. Casey's also the author of a recently published article in foreign policy titled... 
Russia's red line in Crimea has been erased, which we are discussing today. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Critical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review because that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can still follow us on the platform formerly known as the Twitter at Power Vertical, and you can also follow us on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical. And please do, I'm trying to build up my following on Threads and Blue Sky for reasons which should be obvious to everybody. When an aggressor finds itself on a trajectory of defeat, as Russia does in its war against us, it always relies on the thing. It is not ready to admit that its decision to launch an aggression was a mistake. It is not prepared to retreat from foreign land. Not yet, but the day will come. So, Casey, let's imagine you and General Hodges are right and the Ukrainians liberate Crimea. At the risk of getting way ahead of our skis, what then? What next? You have a population that's been living under de facto Russian rule for a decade. You have dramatic demographic, forced demographic changes on the peninsula. You had a redistribution of property. You could have Crimean Tatars returning to reclaim their property. They always say, be careful what you wish for. Um, and as desirable as the Ukrainian, as a Crimean liberation is, and I think we all agree it is very desirable, it could also get messy. What do we expect to see and what do we hope to see? Yeah, Brian, I, I do think if, if nothing else, there's one guarantee that it will be messy. Um, and that was always baked in from the start of the annexation itself. I think there are a few data points, again, to keep in mind as we... Uh, consider options, policy options, policy contours moving forward. You know, over the past decade or so, certainly since the annexation, the best estimates place the new arrivals of, um, of Russian Federation nationals at anywhere between about 300,000 and 600,000. This is not a population you can, whether it's corral, whether it's you convince uh, overnight to change their political views, let alone their uh, preferences for which country they are living in. This will be an uphill climb. This will take significant work, significant effort, even for that population alone, to say nothing of how you go through the actual reclamation of seized property, nationalized property, stolen property, what have you, and begin to recreate the economic infrastructure of the peninsula itself. I mean, this is going to be in many ways a state-building state capacity effort, and certainly we know from the American example, the American side, how difficult that has been um, uh, just over the past 20 years or so. You know, I, I, I unfortunately don't have quite so many details as it pertains to what specific policies of whether it's things like lustration and prosecution, whether it is economic uh, justice, restorative justice, especially for uh, Crimean Tatar uh, populations uh, themselves, to say nothing how you will handle um, the guilt or potential guilt of officials that can argue they were simply coerced into doing the Kremlin's bidding itself. None of this is going to be easy. None of this is going to be done overnight. But that's not to say it's not worth doing and that it can't be done. But I, I, I do want to say, pulling back a little bit, and Brian, you, you, you've, you've made this point plenty of times. You know, if there is a new 
dividing line in this, if you want to call it a new Cold War standoff, you know, uh, whatever the terminology may be, if there is a if there's a, if there's a Cold War style dividing line, it's not in Germany anymore, it's in Ukraine. And one of the key elements of success within the West and especially the U.S.'s broader efforts during the Cold War was simply making the West more appealing for those that were living behind the Iron Curtain. We have to always keep in mind whether it yeah. pertains to Crimea, whether it pertains to, frankly, domestic Russian support for the war itself. At the end of the day, we have to make the West, and in this case, we have to especially make Ukraine the more appealing option for those in Crimea or elsewhere, other occupied territories um, in, in southern and eastern uh, U Ukraine itself. And that is part of a whole suite of packages, uh, economic, prosecutorial, um, uh, based on reparations, based on investment, so on and so forth that uh, are not unique to Crimea, but will help as it pertains to a, a potential Crimean re-annexation um, uh, moving forward. Yeah, no, and I, I uh, along those lines, this is along the lines of one of your, 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 your other research interests, if not your main research interest, the 300 billion in seized Russian assets um, from the Russian kleptocracy yeah. uh, that the United States and Western Europe now has effective control over. Um, it seems the administration is warming to the idea, at least according to the reporting I was reading yesterday. The administration is warming to the idea of trying to find ways to use that $300 billion for um, for uh, for uh, reconstruction. And a lot of that could go to, 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 to Crimea to turn it into um, what we always knew Crimea could be, quite frankly, at the, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. But we do have this concern here of possible reprisals. There's going to be a lot of angry people coming back to Crimea. Um, there's good, I mean, think of the problems that other, other former Soviet occupied territories had in this regard. Think of the, 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 the problems the Baltics had. What are you going to do with the Russians who relocated to Crimea after the annexation? Are they going to be automatically granted citizenship or is there going to be some kind of process? Is this going to kind of provide kind of fodder for Russian grievance narratives that no doubt will? How do you handle that? That's going to be really delicate. What about the Crimean Tatars who come back and want to reclaim their property that's been taken? So that's another an, another issue. Um, many, I think there will be some self-selection here. I think a lot of the, the the newly arrived Russians will simply return to the Russian Federation in this regard. They are People are leaving Ukraine in droves. Um, so we have all of these things to worry about. Um, and we cannot afford a policy of benign neglect this time. Uh, neither from Kiev uh, nor from Washington, Brussels, Berlin, and London, right? In uh, Paris, we need we 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 uh, this has to be a a lot at stake in what would happen in a new newly liberated yeah. Crimea. And again, I don't think this is as theoretical or as far fetched as as people think. Any thoughts on all that? No, look, Brian. I mean, a few, a few thoughts. I think one, as it pertains to the Russian grievance, uh, I think certainly for parts, portions, I don't know about the majority of the Russian body politic itself. I think that notion of grievance, I think that's going to be built in one way or the other that has already propelled Putin and his base so far. And obviously the Ukrainian reclamation, I mean, you know, these, these, these elements of 
uh, 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 Russian propaganda pertaining to Crimea, they don't only target populations in the West. There are still plenty of Russians themselves that un unfortunately believe these, and this will continue to be a propellant and uh, a factor in why the U.S. Um, and the broader West has to continue building up both economic and security relations with Ukraine uh, moving forward after Ukraine reclaims uh, Crimea in and of itself. You know, I, I think, you know, all these questions that you're asking are the exact right questions to be asking right now, because these right. are not the questions we want to be asking as the Ukrainian flag uh, rises once more in Simferopol, as Russian naval assets, you know, steam out, if they still exist, of Sevastopol itself. This is not something we want to be, you know, uh, caught, you know, holding the bag and have no idea what comes next, because that is absolutely how things spiral into uncontrollable uh, reprisal-based violence, frankly, on both sides. And that is absolutely what we want to avoid moving forward, not only because that adds fuel to the grievance fire, but because that has the potential to decimate the appeal of Ukraine, of the broader right. West itself moving forward. Yeah, no, and I think I, I think we got to have all eyes. Now, on a positive note, because I'm an optimist by nature, and this is an interesting argument that was made to me um, by, by, by a former resident of Crimea who's living in Europe, who said basically, at the end of the day, those living in Crimea, a lot of them are older, a lot of them are pensioners, um, a lot of them are uh, the um, examples of the so-called Soviet person, Soviet man, but let's put it in gender neutral terms, the Soviet person. <laughs> and what is the what is the distinguishing feature of this 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 Soviet individual? They basically do as they're told. They follow, they have an instinctive nose for where Vlast is, where power is, and they fall in line, basically. And this might be one of the positive elements in Crimea post-liberation is that these kind of Soviet individuals are just going to basically, okay, we're ruled by Ukraine now. That's cool. I'll, I'll, we'll, 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 do you think as somebody, I mean, we, we both spent a lot of time in the former Soviet Union. We know of this mentality that we, of which we speak. It's of a certain generation of former Soviet citizen. Um, it's not so true of the younger generations, but the problem here is the older. I mean, the, 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 the do, do you think that is a, a viable and accurate argument? I, 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 abs with it. I absolutely think there are generational elements within this. We didn't see polling in 2013, 2014, breaking things down by generation, breaking things down by, by age. But if polling from other parts of whether it's the Russian Federation or elsewhere in the former Soviet space are anything to go by, absolutely that will play out in Crimea itself. Um, you certainly certainly see that play out in, 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 in the rest of Ukraine as it pertains to the younger generation of Ukrainians being more than happy to um, uh, wear the mantle of Ukrainian identity, Ukrainian nationhood, whether or not they're ethnic Ukrainian, whether or not they're actually can trace their lineage back to Ukraine um, uh, in pre-Soviet uh, times it's, uh, itself. I mean, I do think, you know, it, it's funny, um, you know, going, going back again to the polling that, that we know of, that we know about, there were, again, clear signs of, of pro-annexation sentiment among parts of the population, but by no means the majority. No means a let alone clear um uh, overwhelming majority like uh, like Russia would claim itself and and I do think as we consider as Ukrainians consider what it will mean for Ukrainian reclamation of Crimea itself it, it it's it's you know it's one thing to consider in a vacuum it's also impossible i really think it, it, it's it's very difficult for us to consider all the other uh, uh uh elements of what that would actually mean on the ground in places like the Russian Federation. You know, what what does it mean for Ukrainian troops to be pushing into Crimea 
both um both obviously for Ukraine itself, but especially domestically um in 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 Moscow, in the Kremlin itself. At what point does that uh, uh, provide evidence of significant weakness for Putin for the Putin regime itself, leading to domestic destabilization and decreasing any kind of appeal for the Russian Federation itself? I mean, that's just one element of of many, whether it is the uh, homo sovieticus that still exists in Crimea, whether it is domestic support for retaining Crimea or any other uh, Ukrainian province that Russia claims as its own. I mean, it's just you have these kind of interlocking realities and trajectories as it pertains to Ukraine potentially pushing into Crimea that are you know, very difficult to consider all in unison. But again, this is why it's so important to be having these conversations now and to treating this not as a certainty, not as a guarantee, nothing in this war is guaranteed, but as an increasing likelihood if the U.S., if the West can continue its level of support for what Ukrainians are asking for, what they need, and what they will require moving forward. Yeah, no, I think we shouldn't underestimate the domestic Russian political implications of this. I mean, it, it's worth repeating that Putin's domestic legitimacy since 2014 has been based on this Crimea consensus, the whole Krim Nash. He was back on his back heels um, before he annexed Crimea. And losing Crimea, again, Russians are not kind to leaders who lose wars. And this could have serious domestic political repercussions. Now, on the other hand, right, and I'm anathema to any talk of a deal, I am I am just so absolutely vehemently opposed. But one of the things that's been floating out there is, well, we let them keep Crimea as a consolation prize. And I say no. I say no for a number of reasons. Like you said at the very outset, Casey, this whole nonsense began in Crimea and that's where it's got to end. Um, but also Ukraine's domestic security cannot be guaranteed under the conditions of a Russian occupation of Crimea. It just cannot. Um, it's just it, southern Ukraine is too vulnerable. Uh, Ukraine's freedom of navigation um, in the Sea of Azov in the Black Sea is too vulnerable in that situation. So this, but I, I that's something I I do worry about. Um, if we get to a situation where Ukraine manages to liberate eastern Ukraine uh, in the Donbas and Crimea is the only thing left on the map, I worry about pressure to basically cut a deal at that point. And I think that pressure should be resisted. I assume you agree. Yeah, no, and this is what I hope these conversations, certainly the articles that I and others uh, have been writing, you know, commentators like uh, General Hodges, this is what I, we're, we're hoping to, certainly I'm hoping to, uh, you know, put into the broader discussions about policy vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Western support for Ukraine and obviously Ukraine retaking its own Ukrainian land um, uh, moving forward. I mean, I will say, Brian, I I, um, I, I share your, your, what's the word, antipathy Right. Uh, toward uh, any and all who suggest this kind of land for peace deal. And you don't even have to talk about, you know, the, the kind of appeasement style arrangements we saw in the 1930s and 1940s. All you have to do is say, this is what we tried post-2014. We effectively granted Russian control of Crimea. And if Putin hadn't led this expanded invasion in early 2022, then by all means, he likely would have been assured of retaining Crimea until his dying breath. And yet he decided he wanted more. We have seen this pattern. We have seen this playbook play out. We have seen it tried. We have seen it fail. And for those who still, as you can tell, my, my hackles get a little raised when I see oh, yeah. suggesting this kind of land for peace, not only for how it would play out on the ground, but obviously the broader ignorance of Crimea and Crimeans 
uh, themselves. It will not work. It has not worked. There is no reason to think it will work under the Putin regime moving forward. Well, yeah, and it's unfortunate, though. People in the town I'm sitting in and other capitals in the Western world have short memories, unfortunately. And I guess you and I and others will just have to keep on reminding everybody yeah. time and time again. Um, anything you want to add before I wrap it up? I'm watching the clock here. No, look, Brian, I mean, again, I think at the end of the day, it is the reason that you and I are having this conversation is because of the importance of Crimea to this war, to Ukrainian sovereignty, to Ukrainian national security moving forward, to Black Sea security, to domestic implications in Russia. The list goes on and on and on. And if nothing else, it is a reminder to listeners and to folks out there that still think this began in February 2022, that this has a lot longer legs, a lot longer lineage in history than just that. It began in Crimea, and in all likelihood, it will end in Crimea. And frankly, you know, it has to. At the end of the day, it will not end until Ukraine until. has restored sovereignty uh, of Crimea. Otherwise, we're going to be either watching the same story play out or running in circles or wasting our breath or, worse comes to worse, watching the Russian victory in uh, in Kiev, in Ukraine itself. Um, you know, Putin will not stop until Ukraine is a vassal of this renewed Russian empire and Crimea is a, if not the key component to that effort moving forward. Unless he has stopped and until he has stopped. That's, that's, that, that's, uh, and that is a great way to wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I would like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the uber-hit borough of Brooklyn, New York, has been journalist and longtime Russia watcher Casey Michelle, author of the book American Kleptocracy. Casey's also so the author of the recently published and must-read article in Foreign Policy that we've been discussing today, titled Russia's Red Line in Crimea Has Been Erased. Casey, thanks for an enlightening discussion and to making me and all of our listeners a lot smarter. Thanks so much, Brian. Great to be here. Thank you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas, where the Texas Rangers play and are surprising the world in, 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 in baseball right now. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Bell handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and in if you do please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility you can also access the podcast read the power vertical blog and access all power vertical products at powervertical.org you can still follow us on the platform formerly known as the twitter at power vertical but i urge everybody to also follow us on threads and blue sky at power vertical join us again next week and until then i leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team 